All right, well, you can open your Bibles back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week, we started to understand this very important but difficult passage right here. We're right in the middle of uh, 2 Corinthians. And what we did last week, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. We walked through the Old Testament and we saw the many different times and ways that God warned his people about having close associations with those who practice false religion, with those who, who practice idol worship. And so we looked at God's warnings uh, to Israel way back in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy um, for, for Israel to take it very seriously. If anybody suggests to them that they should worship a false god, don't listen to that person. As a matter of fact, God is so intent on having his people remain true to him exclusively that he says, he says that person should die. If somebody comes and tries to influence you away from the true God, that person should die. Why, why is it so extreme? Because there's grave danger. We saw the danger of leaving those idol-worshiping Canaanites in the land, and we saw how that, there was that temptation there to just look over and you know, that other, that other guy's crops, they're doing, they're doing better than my crops. What does he do different than me? Well, he goes to a fertility temple down the road. Well, let me see how that goes for me, too. And slowly but surely, uh, the Israel began to be influenced by the gods of the Canaanites. We saw Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who gave himself over to many different wives from many different nations, and his heart was turned astray to the gods of the pagan nations. And we saw that the Israelites, for the most part, never actually rejected the worship of Yahweh, but what they did is they thought that they could worship Yahweh plus the gods of the nations. And God wouldn't have it. God wants their exclusive worship. And so it's important for us to understand that there was so much at stake regarding Israel's idolatry. Yes, Yahweh is the true God, and he is the one worthy of worship. And we we see these warnings again and again. Don't go after false gods. Don't associate with false gods. So the first verse in our passage uh, that we kind of started last week, and we've we've mentioned it a couple of times, it's not hard to understand, 2 Corinthians 6.13. The meaning is fairly clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And y'all remember those deep words from Matt that I mentioned last week that have steered my mind as I've proceeded through this passage. David, try not to be a wacko. And I've kept those in mind as, I, as I've gone through here. And we're, we're working hard at, uh, at not seeming completely crazy as we try to understand this passage. Uh, but I do believe that it's very, very important for us to understand what this passage means. It feels restrictive. I think Paul knew it felt restrictive. It brings out of us this response that says, who are you to tell me who I can or cannot associate with? The fog of sin and the world system has, has blinded our eyes to the danger. And so it lulls us into being comfortable and we let our guard down. And that's why I wanted to spend that time looking at this verse 
in the context of the whole Bible so that you guys can see this isn't just coming out of nowhere. This is very consistent with what God wants us to understand going all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians, we are coming to the end of a long section about ministry. It started all the way back in chapter 2. And probably in a couple of weeks, I'm going to just do a little, a little quick review so that we can understand everything that Paul has said in these, um, these four chapters. I think it's safe to say that some in the Corinthian church thought Paul sounded like a wacko. They were not impressed with his ministry. They were not impressed with his message. And they were not impressed with him. And they wanted to take the message of Christ and marry it together with practices and philosophies that were rooted in worldliness and idolatry. And, and they, wanted, they wanted to try to a, appeal to the, the, the idolatry centers of their nature to say, hey, can't, can't we do both? Can't we seem impressive to both worlds? And, and in a sense, we do the same thing. We, we, too, try to bring idolatrous practices and idolatrous ideas into the church. And y'all, Paul won't have it. He won't have it then. And I believe even 2,000 years later, he would, he would say the same thing to us. Okay, so Paul has, has said that he is this ambassador. We saw that at the end of chapter 5. He's giving this message that is sincere and that is amazing and it's important and it is that sinners can be reconciled to God. In fact, God has taken the initiative to reconcile sinners through Jesus Christ. And y'all, those people who adhere to that God-denying world system and that message that we've talked about, they do not understand this message. They do not understand the message of reconciliation and they will not be impressed because they have the wrong perspective. He said in chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so a lot in these four chapters on ministry, it's been all about perspective, about success. What does it look like to be successful in ministry? What does it look like to be a failure? What does weakness look like? He's, Paul says over and over, I am an earthen vessel. I am weak, and it's the power of God who works through me. He's talked about things you can see versus things you can't see. Things that are, which perspective are we going to have? Ambition to please men or ambition to please Christ? And it's really, really very simple, y'all. The unbelieving world does not see these things from God's Perspective, And when we understand the gospel, our perspective changes. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, that's all. I'm done with the introduction. <laughs> let's get to the passage itself, all right? And let's just understand this. Paul's statement about not being unequally yoked it doesn't come out of nowhere. If we understand it in the light of all these things we've seen, then we understand that what he's saying is the God-denying world system and the message of reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ cannot coexist. It's the same as bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon. Darkness cannot coexist with light. Righteousness and lawlessness cannot have harmony with each other. You Corinthians 
are trying to do something that won't work. You're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. You're trying to keep the other gods around, the little g-gods around. Even as you worship Christ, it's time for you to let go of the gods, of the God-denying world system, the gods of the nation, and it's time to be united exclusively to Christ. So once we understand that context, this passage is simple. And that's why I think it can be so off-putting. Sometimes simple passages can be the hardest for us to accept. Everyone is pretty clear about what Paul is saying when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right, so having said all that, I want us to just walk through the passage and see three reasons to avoid being unequally yoked. Um, And we're going to go all the way down to chapter 7, verse 1, because I think that's where the thought ends. First of all, it defies logic. Secondly, it defiles God's temple. And third, it denies God's promises. All right, so first of all, to be unequally yoked defies logic. And let's look at the passage. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? All right, so we've already said the unbelieving world can't see things from God's perspective. It makes no sense to them. A person who is committed to doing righteousness is going to have a hard time working together with a person who's committed to lawlessness. When light invades a room, the darkness cannot stay there. They cannot coexist. And Belial is simply another name for Satan. It literally means son of worthlessness. Is there any question that there can be no accord between Satan and Christ? They can never work together. They can never have a common end. So when Paul uses this phrase, unequally yoked, he probably has in mind Deuteronomy 22.10. Anybody remember that one? No. Okay. Um, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That's Deuteronomy 22.10. So this is a a very practical picture of what it means to be unequally yoked. So a yoke is the wooden bar that's set on the animal's neck, and it would have connected the animals to each other and then to the burden that they were bearing. All right? So to be unequally yoked was to have a team of animals where maybe one is stronger and one is weaker, or one is taller and one is shorter, all right? So two animals that are unequally yoked will not be able to perform the same task that you want them to perform. It's that simple. So one might be slower, and that would cause them to walk in circles. So they're not going to be able to plow the, the ground. One might be stronger, and he might drive the one who is weaker in such a way that the weaker one would be injured. And so rather than working together, they're actually working against each other. And so Paul says... What accord has Christ with Bilal? Think about this. All right, so Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 2, he came taking the form of a servant, refusing to grasp the glory that was rightly due him in God. So Jesus, his nature is to be open-handed regarding glory. I, he deserves the glory, but he, he lets the glory um, go so that he can serve. All right? Satan, on the other hand, is one who is characterized by trying to snatch glory that doesn't belong to him. All right. So he saw God 
And he wanted glory, so he tried to take that glory. All right? So how can someone who is committed to Christ, who is identified as releasing glory that is due him, work together with someone who is committed to a system governed by Satan who is trying to take glory that doesn't belong? Those two can't ever be in harmony. They can never work to the same end. Hear hear Jesus saying, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. None of this is vague. None of this is hard to understand. There is a kingdom of light. There is a kingdom of darkness. The two are in opposition to one another, and they cannot get along nice. So if you see this from a biblical perspective, it defies logic. But sin is illogical, and our hearts are deceitful, and there's a way that seems right to men, but in the end it leads to death. The worship of God seems right to our sinful hearts, but it leads to death. And Paul is saying, get away from it. Remove yourself from it. So first of all, it defies logic. Secondly, it defiles God's temple. Verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. All right, last week we looked at what happened. You remember what happened when the Ark of the Covenant came into the temple of Dagon? Dagon, the God with the big fish head. Dagon had had a head of a fish ends up lying on his face with his head and his arms knocked off before the the Ark of the Covenant, all right? So we know what happens when you bring the Ark into a a temple of a false god. Well, what happens when you try to bring false gods into the temple of the true God? Let me read to you uh, from 2 Kings uh, verse 21. Sorry, take a moment and turn there. Second Kings 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out from among the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem, uh, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So Manasseh, the king of Israel actually builds idols in the house 
of the Lord. He, he brings them right in there. And so finally, in verses 11 and 12, it says, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin and with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In Ezekiel 8, the people are already in Babylon. They've been taken away. And Ezekiel is brought from Babylon into a vision back to the temple. And he sees a hole in the wall of the temple. And he, he digs through. It's a fascinating story. You should go read it. Read it from Ezekiel 8 all the way to Ezekiel 11. He digs through the hole and he slips through the wall. And he's able to observe all these abominations that are going on right in the temple. Let me, let me read to you from Ezekiel 8, just a, a few verses here. Ezekiel 8, uh, verse 10. So I went in and I saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in the room of pictures? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he also said to me, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see even greater abominations abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. So right there in the temple of the Lord, they've they've brought in the idols. Ezekiel has this vision of the men, the elders, worshiping these false gods. And so Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 tells the story, we've looked at it in here before, of the glory of the Lord rising up out of the temple, moving out through the city, and then to the Mount of Olives where it goes back to heaven. When the Philistines brought the ark into the temple of Dagon, Dagon got knocked around. When the people of Judah brought idols into the temple of God, God left his own temple. And so Paul asked the question, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The answer is none. And the head-scratching part of all of this is that the one true glorious God had decided to live with those people and they crowded him out of his own temple. Paul says in the second half of verse 16, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So this is a a glorious promise, y'all. There was a temple. It was in Jerusalem. The glory of God was manifested above that temple. Y'all, this is no carved idol. This is not an idol with a fish head. You could see that the glory of God was dwelling in the temple. And the foolishness of bringing idols into that situation where you're literally turning your back on the glory of God so that you can worship idols is staggering. All right, so catch this. 
The temple of God was the place where God dwelt. In the Old Testament, it was a physical building. In the New Testament, God dwells in believers who comprise the church. Paul says, we are the temple of God. The Spirit dwells in our hearts. Jesus dwells among us. The true and living God is still present in the midst of his people, and it is just as defiling for us to bring idols into this temple as it was for them to bring idols into that temple. It is defiling to bring idols into our hearts. It is defiling to bring idols into the church. And the little g gods of this age, they don't come into our hearts and into our churches in the form of carved idols. We set them up when we bring in our cravings and our philosophies and our initiatives that are rooted more in the world than they are rooted in Christ. And it's the same picture as the one we see in Ezekiel. We leave the Holy Spirit in our midst and we turn and we worship the gods of this world, even though he has promised to dwell among us. So it defiles the temple to bring idols into the church. Third, it denies God's promises. Verse 18, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here's what we know so far. To be unequally yoked, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Someone's going to get hurt. The work you're trying to do is not going to get accomplished. To be unequally yoked defiles the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church. To bring idolatry into the church or to unite ourselves with unbelievers is just as repulsive to God as it was when Judah brought idols right into the temple of God. We've seen in the Old Testament that idolatry, it wasn't just an offense against God's deity, but it was actually treason. He was their king in Israel. If you sought other gods, you were literally rebelling against your king. In the New Testament, Paul says, we have an even greater reason to remain loyal to God because he is our father. So think about the progress of intimacy, even as Paul is working here. God says, I will be your God. That's great. That's great. We will spend all eternity. If if that's all we knew, we would spend all eternity thanking God for that. And And then he comes to a people and he says, I will be your king. Well, that's better. That's closer. But it's still a king dwelling in a temple behind a curtain. And now he says, I will be your father. And that's even more intimate. And there is no veil. Come boldly before the throne. Pray like this, our father in heaven. So with that intimacy, there is more at stake. Why would you turn away from your father and seek after other gods? And it's not just any father. It's a father in heaven who loves you and promises to care for you and will never leave you and will never forsake you. This is an even greater extent to which it just makes no sense. And again, we understand that these are verses that seem hard and unreasonable. Don't be unequally yoked, but look at it from this side. Don't don't risk being pulled away from your father. Don't let the whispers of the world win your 
affection. And there's this convoluted picture that we have that God is somehow trying to keep us from these little pleasures that the, 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 the little gods of the world can bring us when in fact we need to see that the true God, our Father no less, wants to fill our existence with his blessings, but the condition is that we have to forsake those, those other gods. He's not keeping us from enjoying good things. These gods of the world, they wish to do us harm. They wish to pull us away from the one who has promised to do us good. And so when we come to Christ, we see things in that different light. So how should we live? And and Paul has spoken affectionately. We saw this last week in verse 11. He says in, in verses 12 and 13, you are not restrained by us. You are restrained by your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. So Paul is saying, I know you feel restricted by this, but I'm not the one restricting you. Your affections for the things of the world, that's what's restricting you. They're holding you back from knowing all the blessings that come with being reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you as little children. He's not putting us down. He's saying, I'm speaking to you as as a father loves his children. And he closes this section with a similar appeal in in verse 1. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, beloved, there it is again. I, I love you. My affection for you is leading me to say, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. These are some great promises that he's just cited for us. God will walk with us and among us. Y'all, God has promised to walk in his people. He will be our God. We will be his people. He will be our father. We shall be sons and daughters. These are wonderful promises. These are not the words of a tyrant trying to keep us from good things. Just stop doing that and stop doing that. No, he's saying, I will do all of these things for you. The creator of the universe wants to bless us Paul's not trying to keep us from being happy either. Once again, with great affection, he says, therefore, cleanse yourselves from all defilement that comes from idols and those who worship them. He says, cleanse flesh and spirit. Cleanse cleanse yourself totally. Don't hold anything back. Get it all out. And then he says, perfecting holiness. So it's a process. Old habits die hard. Some idols are harder to tear down than others. Some are little paper idols that we can just burn down and tear up. Others are hard wood and stone that take a lifetime to get out. But we keep out at it. It's like soul decluttering. It's like soul conmari. Our hearts are like the house of somebody who's a hoarder. And we have to go through there. The difference between... Soul KonMari and real KonMari is there's only one thing that really sparks joy, and that's the true God. See, I'm relevant. I'm relevant with this illustration right here. Don't try to keep those old idols. Remember that we're the temple of the living God. All right, so in conclusion, how we're going to wrap this up. Two weeks of don't, eat, don't, don't be unequally yoked. Number one. The danger of associations. Don't be unequally yoked. Picture the ox and the donkey. How's that going to go? The donkey is going to get drug around by the ox. He's too weak. The job isn't going to get done. And when you're messing around with false gods, 
You're the donkey in that illustration, okay? Close friendships. We talked about this last week. How have you been most influenced in this life? Has it been radio preachers, YouTube videos, or has it been relationships, people who you love, who have led you into bad habits or who have led you into good habits? If you're unequally yoked with people who are not committed to the same things you are, you will be influenced. And as you give your affections to those people and you want to please them, it becomes harder and harder to live in a different way than they do. Dating, especially dating that leads to marriage, any dating, but anything that's going to lead you towards uniting with a person before God to make a vow with that person that I will never leave you nor forsake you nor till death till, till, till we part to make those kind of vows with a person who doesn't see the world from the same perspective that you do is a dangerous, dangerous proposition. Look at Solomon. Look at how his heart was led astray. And then and business partnerships. I, I think there is application here to say if you unite yourself in business with a person who has a different ethical, moral standard than you do, you are entangling yourself with commitments that are going to affect, what if you become successful? What if you start making money? And what if you realize that before God, you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing? Are you going to love Christ more than you love money or more than you love that partnership? We have example after example from the Bible of destruction and heartache that came from the result of bad associations. As far as how we relate to the world, to be in the world and not of it, as they say, I think the key word here is yoked. So the idea is that you're uniting with someone to work towards a common goal. It's certainly not that we would never be around believers. We would have to be in monasteries if we were going to do that. But it's simply that we would never become bound to them in some kind of covenant or partnership where our end to glorify Christ comes into direct opposition with their ends, which is to satisfy their own idols. And some of these choices are going to seem odd to the unbelieving world. And some questions about who we associate with are going to require a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment and a lot of counsel, wise counsel from other people. So that's the danger of association. Secondly, the ongoing reality of idol worship. Idols are not just an ancient problem. The gods of the nations, they didn't go away after the Enlightenment just because people stopped believing in them. In some way, I think their job just got easier because nobody recognizes them anymore. I read this illustration a good many years back, but I think it's helpful. We don't actually have temples that we fill with idols. Like in reality, I don't think. If you do, you should see Matt and we can talk about that later. Um, But our collection of idols, it probably looks more like a car with a lot of bumper stickers on the back. Sometimes you go downstairs and you see, down downtown and you see all this, you know, some like um, car and it's got bumper stickers all in. It's like, how can you be committed to that many things at one time? So we've got our like Jesus fish that says we're a Christian. Uh... Then we've got, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a Disney annual pass holder, I coexist, uh, I love basset hounds, 
I, my kid is smarter than your kid. And so we've got all of these things, and there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. I'm certainly not saying that Paul is saying that we should get rid of our bumper stickers, but it's an illustration of this sort of divided life that we all live, where our commitment to Christ is so common that it can be compared to just other things that we stick on the back of our car. I used to warn parents against seeing their teenagers as sort of a pie, you know, and they always I say, I want, to have, I want my kids to be well-grounded, so... You know, I want my kids to be athletic, I want them to be smart, I want them to be well-liked, I want them to be musically talented, and I want them to be basically a Christian. And in reality, you're not raising a well-rounded person, you're raising an idol worshiper, if that's what you're teaching them. You're teaching your child to make Jesus one God among many. And Jesus doesn't want a piece of your well-rounded life, he wants the whole life. So don't be deceived into thinking you're above being in danger when it comes to idols. We should be constantly turning away from idols. And that's what we do as we are perfecting holiness. And we should be on guard against uniting with people who are committed to keeping those idols around. Because if we are surrounding ourselves with people who have a bumper sticker faith, we too will become practitioners of bumper sticker faith. Third, finally... I just want to, because I think this relates to us most personally together today, the necessity of regenerate membership at Hope. The necessity of regenerate membership at Hope. So specifically, as this passage relates to us as a church, I think it matters as to who we admit to church membership. Because our new bylaws state that we are congregationally governed, elder-led church. So we are the temple of God together, and we are all responsible for the purity of that temple. And it would be a terrible thing. It would be disobedient for us to become unequally yoked together with unbelieving members in this church. And if our goal is to exalt Christ, then they are only going to work against that goal. And I would submit to you there are many churches in chaos because they have not been diligent in being careful about who they will unite with in membership. And we've all had bad experiences in church business meetings where people have acted like unbelievers and held up unbelieving philosophies right in the middle of the church. So obviously no one can see the heart but we believe it's necessary to do all we can to ensure that everybody we join together with here has a credible testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And there's simply too much at stake to not be careful. So what we're going to do when we admit people to membership is we're going to present those people to you. We're going to have interviewed them and heard uh, their testimony and we're going to say to the best of our knowledge we believe that these people are are true believers in Jesus Christ and if anyone has any any knowledge or any evidence that that might be to the contrary come privately and let's talk about those things but but we want to be serious about this and I know to the world that that seems exclusive and that seems maybe a little bit cold but but we are uniting together. It's, it's just like uh, Dr. Potter said earlier. We are uniting together to, to reach Savannah for the cause of Jesus Christ and then to disciple the people who come into that. And so as we go about that, we, we want to see new people, certainly, who are able 
to unite with us, but we don't want to be yoking up with people who are not going to be about that same vision. So we're not going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. It didn't, it didn't work out for a couple of different reasons, but let me just, let me close with this. And then Tyler, you can come on up here. I, I think the case is clear. Uh, I've taken two weeks to try to, to try to explain it. You can't do both. Christ's claim is an exclusive claim, and he has purchased the right to make that claim at great cost. So I, I hope you have a lot to think about as you go out from here. I hope you will consider these things, especially you young people involving friendships, dating relationships. I hope you will consider these things and, and remember uh, the warnings that we have in the scripture about the dangers of associating yourself with, with people who do not see Christ with the same perspective that, that we do. Um, let's sing.